Jordan Lambert came from one of St. Louis's most influential families. His father, a chemist and pharmacist, had created an antiseptic called Listerine in the late 19th century. It was soon found in medicine cabinets across the country. It was the start of the Lambert Pharmacal Company and it turned generations of the family into millionaires many times over. Jordan's brother Albert became an aviation pioneer, financed Charles Lindbergh's flight to Paris, and started the airfield that was later named Lambert International Airport in his honor. Jordan, however, did not achieve quite what the other members of his family did. Born in 1872, he served like his contemporary Billy Limp did as the vice president of his father's company while doing little to advance its operations. He was better known for owning horse racing tracks, hanging around St. Louis men's clubs, and winning trophies as an expert billiards player. The thing that finally put Jordan and his first wife Helen on the front pages of the St. Louis newspapers, though, was their ardent embrace of the spiritualist movement. Their belief in the possibility of communication with the dead was so strong in the early 20th century that it made national news, largely thanks to the medium who served as a caretaker for their son and who may or may not have been responsible for their divorce. Strange things were happening in the St. Louis social scene in the early 1900s, and a lot of them involved ghosts and the Lambert family. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. This is the second of two episodes about the Lambert family of St. Louis, perhaps the most public and undoubtedly the wealthiest spiritualists in the city. So if you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, you may want to go back and listen to episode 25, which presents the first part of this series within a series. The Lamberts were fascinating people, and while overshadowed by the unlucky Limp family, they were nearly as wealthy and just as controversial in St. Louis in the early 1900s. Their story, however, has never really been told. So we hope you enjoy this second part of the look into the strange, astonishing, and ultimately tragic lives of the city's richest dabblers into the occult. At the end of the last part of the Lambert story, we left off after Will Hannigan's first sit-down interview with a St. Louis reporter about the psychic gifts that he claimed to possess. Readers were aware of the supernatural happenings that were occurring in Lambert home, but had only heard about them secondhand from Helen and Jordan Lambert. This was their first look at the medium who had impressed the Lamberts, their influential friends, and some of the greatest psychical investigators in the country. But the interview would turn out to be a grave disappointment. Hannigan offered little information, and the reporter who spoke with him was not impressed. The public was, though. They'd heard the stories, and Hannigan was just as weird as they had hoped he'd be. The newspapers, though, were just about to turn on him. They soon started asking serious questions about the validity of Hannigan's marvelous feats. But before that could happen, though, something even stranger did. Will Hannigan disappeared. Two days later, a bold headline appeared on page one of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. It said, Hannigan has disappeared and the Lamberts keep mum. In the wake of the report from the American Society for Psychical Research and the newspaper interview that followed, the telephone started ringing at the Lambert home. Everyone seemed to want a piece of the young medium and demanded his time. He was invited to seances, to look for missing objects, and to make predictions about business and much more. The strange little man was overwhelmed, and so were the Lamberts. Reporters kept coming to the house. 
A reporter from the Post-Dispatch was told by a maid that Hannigan was in the house, but that she could not permit anyone to talk to him without the consent of the Lamberts. She returned to the door a few minutes later and it changed her mind. Hannigan was gone. She had no idea where he was, she said. And she added, Mr. Lambert told her to tell the reporter that the family had nothing else to say about the clairvoyant and his work. The Hannigan incident, as they were now calling it, was closed. That first sit-down interview was the last time that Hannigan ever spoke to the press. From that point on, he kept to himself and the Lamberts refused to come on, on anything that was still taking place in the house. The seances became private affairs, open only to the Lamberts and their close friends, but they didn't cease, not yet anyway. With Hannigan out of the public eye, there was nothing that anyone could do but speculate about the medium and the city's wealthiest spiritualists. And that's when the backlash began. Newspaper writers who had previously been writing about Hannigan in glowing terms, mostly based on Helen's breathless accounts of his amazing feats, and not because of anything they'd actually witnessed themselves, began expressing doubts in print about just what the medium was capable of doing. It seemed that the accounts from witnesses in Hannigan's interview, followed by his subsequent disappearance from the public eye, was just too much for them to swallow. Soon articles appeared about his, quote, stunts, calling into question just about everything they had already written about Hannigan. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch followed Hannigan's interview with a scathing piece that ridiculed his purported, quote, exploits, which included table turning, slate writing, the production of roses by spirits, the manifesting of astral bodies, and suggested that all of them could have been easily duplicated by, quote, performers in hocus pocus and jugglers. They also noted that Hannigan suspiciously refused to exhibit his powers except in friendly seclusion at the Lambert House and never in the presence of strangers. The newspaper interviewed a man named G.H. Luz, said to be a scientific investigator of spiritualism, who said that most of Hannigan's stunts were so successful because they occurred with the expectant attention of Helen Lambert. The only outside witness seemed to be Professor James Hyslop, who was an acquaintance of the Lamberts due to their friendship in psychical societies. He was not, Luz was adamant, an unbiased witness. Hannigan had what, to a conjurer, would have been the invaluable advantage of a residence which he used as the stage for his performances. He had the free run of the house and was frequently left alone in it. No professional magician could ask for a greater initial advantage. Hannigan's gifts were, quote, discovered on the night that the table allegedly moved toward him during an automatic writing session at the Lambert House, but table tilting had already been questioned for many years as nothing more than muscle energy created by the sitters at a table, the newspaper pointed out. It didn't mean that Hannigan tricked the group that night, but he easily could have. Another feat that thoroughly astounded Jordan and Helen was the sudden appearance of two dazzling white roses in a vase on a table when Hannigan conjured his spirit guide for messages from the dead wife of a friend. The important point in this situation, according to conjurers interviewed by the newspaper, was reducing the room to complete darkness before and during the production of the roses. With darkness in their favor and prolonged residence in the Lambert house, it was suggested that even a third-rate magician could have produced the roses by sleight of hand along with, quote, a flock of doves, a brace of rabbits, and several dozen yards of bunting. One florist to whom Jordan displayed the roses said he'd never seen anything like them before, but the newspaper pointed out that was only one florist and it didn't prove anything. The Lamberts were positive there had been no roses in the house before the, quote, miracle occurred, but they were just as positive as many people had been about their pockets being empty just before a conjurer drew from them, quote, enough dry goods to stock a counter. The production of ghosts, the article went on, had become so hackneyed that professional magicians hesitated to materialize them for fear of boring their audiences. Such feats had been perfected in the 19th century and had been part of phony seances and trickery ever since. The article continued, debunking every single trick that Hannigan had pulled that impressed the Lamberts and made special mention of the obliging spook who had once saved the Lamberts from robbery. They believed the spirit had opened and closed a bathroom door, scaring away a burglar. They'd been warned about his arrival by Joe Wentworth, Hannigan's spirit guide, but Helen's plan to call the police was hurriedly dismissed by the medium. A natural explanation would be that the burglar, or accomplice in this case, possibly, maybe, who was prowling about downstairs accidentally slammed the door himself and thought it best with the family stirring excitedly above to flee and avoid capture. And that wasn't the end. The next day, the newspapers began tracking down members of Hannigan's family, trying to dig up dirt on the medium that, until recently, had been all the rage in the city. 
His brother-in-law, Anthony Gilgenberg, who ran a butcher shop on North Broadway, told a reporter, quote, I never took Will's tricks as meaning anything. He began doing spiritualist tricks last March and we used to joke with him about it. I thought it was some sort of faking he picked up. John Hannigan, a city detective, said he knew nothing of his brother's psychic powers and that he hadn't seen him for a year. He didn't even know where he'd been living until he saw newspaper articles about Will with the Lamberts. He waved away the reporter's questions. Quote, drop me out of this thing. I'm too busy with material, everyday work to pay any attention to this psychic stuff. The articles became widely read around St. Louis and were a scathing example of what could happen when the press decided to turn against someone to whom it had previously given favorable column inches. The stories were painful, not only for Will Hannigan, but for the Lamberts as well. Up until now, no one had publicly questioned the young medium's purported gifts. They'd been reported secondhand in the newspaper because reporters were happy to report on a story that was given to them by one of the wealthiest and most powerful couples in the city. None of them had seen Hannigan in action, except for the Lamberts and their friends, of course. Hannigan's unconvincing explanation for his many talents raised suspicion, and reporters started asking questions. Hannigan was embarrassed by the articles, but so was Jordan Lambert. The undertone of them was that the Lamberts had been duped by the young man. He was obviously a fraud, the pieces made clear, and the Lamberts had been fooled. Helen refused to believe that Hannigan could be a phony, but Jordan was clearly upset, upset enough to speak to a reporter himself. The annoyance resulting from the publication in the newspapers of the psychic research instituted by Mrs. Lambert has determined me in dropping off all further experiments, he said. When I go down the street, men whom I have known for a long time avoid me, and my friends ask me if I am crazy to have had such things published about me and my family. It is maddening to be treated in that manner. We've been flooded with letters and telephone messages and offers from charlatans to demonstrate at our home until I am thoroughly disgusted. I am going to quit. It may have been the newspapers or perhaps just Jordan's disgust with it all that led to the couple's falling out over the authenticity of Will Hannigan. Things became so bad that they separated in the summer of 1911. Helen went to live in New York and Jordan went to Europe. When the stories made the newspapers, Helen's mother stated pointedly that the separation had been caused by Will Hannigan, who had been fired by Jordan Lambert. With the medium out of the picture, Mrs. Smith said, perhaps there was a chance that her daughter and son-in-law might be reunited. You see, Mrs. Smith painted a pretty ugly picture of the situation. She said that Hannigan had a quote, strange influence over the family. Helen, she explained, had not been well since the birth of her second child in 1905, and she took up the study of psychic phenomena as a diversion. It was Jordan's eventual objection to her continued fascination with Hannigan that caused the estrangement. He lost faith in the medium, and he was angered because Helen refused to give up on spiritualism. Jordan disagreed. A few days after Mrs. Smith's statements appeared in the newspaper, he made a statement of his own. He didn't address the Hannigan situation except to say that he and Helen had mutually chosen to hire Hannigan as a caretaker for their son. He also believed that people were being too critical of Helen. All cause is chargeable to myself, he said. He and Helen had an understanding to reside apart for the present, hinting that perhaps the separation would not be permanent. Well, as it turned out, it was. Jordan and Helen divorced and went to live separate lives. Helen received an annual stipend from Lambert Pharmacal, and Jordan continued playing billiards and working with his brothers and cousins at the company. He moved into a new home at the exclusive Oxford Apartments, and then in 1915, unexpectedly, got remarried. His new wife, Bernice Kendall, was from Webster Groves. They were married in New York with only Bernice's mother and sister in attendance. But the marriage didn't last long. By the spring of 1917, they were already separated and talking about divorce. And then in August, something happened that pushed Jordan over the edge. His cousin, Albert W. Lambert, later said that he thought Jordan's estrangement from Bernice and an unknown illness were the cause for his breakdown. He said that the board of directors of Lambert Pharmacal had insisted that Jordan take some time off, but he'd refused. The United States was just entering World War I and he wanted to be on the job. Lambert said that Jordan was, quote, not a well man and was very nervous. His nervousness made him irritable and he and his wife decided that it would be better if she went to stay with her relatives for a while. A letter that was later found among Jordan's things suggested that the two were contemplating divorce. The cause for Jordan's nervousness 
remains unknown, but whatever it was, his brother, J.D. Wooster Lambert, later told the newspapers, quote, my brother was a nervous wreck and cannot be charged with any deliberate act. On August 17, 1917, Jordan Lambert committed suicide. He was only 43 years old at the time of his death. The timeline leading up to his death remains confusing after all these years. There are questions about who he was with before he shot himself, as well as the mysterious reasons for the telephone call that alerted the authorities to his body. Jordan's body was discovered in the early morning hours by his maid, Minnie Ron. She had been sound asleep when the telephone started ringing around 1.30 a.m. She didn't recognize the voice of the woman on the other end of the line, but the woman told Minnie that she was convinced that something was wrong with Jordan. The woman told her, quote, I wish you would go to Mr. Lambert's room and see how he is. He telephoned me that he was ill and did not think he could live through it. Minnie declined. Jordan had been in bed for some time and she didn't want to bother him. But the woman pleaded with her, quote, please go. I fear something has happened, please. Finally, Minnie agreed. She kept the woman on the line and quietly passed through the nine room apartment to Jordan's bedroom, which looked out over the front of the building from the sixth floor. She carefully eased open the door and found him on the floor in a pool of blood. There was a pistol lying next to him. Minnie ran back to the telephone. Come quick, she shouted into the receiver. Something has happened. The voice at the other end of the line simply said, oh. This was followed by a click as she disconnected. Minnie then called Jordan's cousin, A.W. Lambert, and his brother, J.D. Wooster Lambert, and both men arrived a short time later by automobile. They called Dr. J.J. Berry and finally called the police. Dr. Berry pronounced Jordan dead and said that he thought the shot had been fired no more than a half hour before Minnie discovered his body. He added there was nothing to indicate that Jordan's death was anything other than suicide. He was wearing his underclothes, shoes, and socks. His trousers had been neatly folded over the foot of the bed. The bullet had entered his right temple, passed through his brain, and exited just above the forehead on the opposite side of his head. There was a large dresser at his feet and his gun, a 38 caliber automatic pistol, was between his feet and the dresser. There were no powder burns on Jordan's face. There was one cartridge in the magazine and one in the chamber. But an automatic ejects its shell as it fires. Strangely though, the shell was never found. What happened to it? Who was the unknown woman who called the Lambert home? Why did Jordan kill himself? Dr. Barry, along with coroner R.S. Vitt, hoped that more answers would come to light at the inquest that was scheduled for August 8th, but they didn't. Well, at least not at first. What the coroner's jury was able to discover was that Jordan made a telephone call on August 6th from the Turkish bath of the Planters Hotel to a number in the West End. He appeared to be very agitated during the call, which took place around 7 p.m. Who did he call? Well, no one knew, including the operator at the telephone company, so Corner Vitt was forced to file for a formal subpoena to get the information. And that wasn't the only mystery left unsolved on the first day of the inquest. No light was shed on the identity of the late night caller to the Lambert house, although Jordan's cousin suggested that perhaps it was one of his friends. But Corner Vitt filed a separate subpoena to try and find the number the mystery woman had called from. Witnesses were brought to the stand, including Minnie Ron, who went over her testimony about the telephone call and the discovery of Jordan's body. She said that on Monday, she had served Jordan breakfast around 11 a.m. and he didn't seem to be feeling well. He wandered around the apartment and once she heard him exclaim, quote, I'm so lonesome, I wish Marion was here. Marion was one of Jordan's brothers, then serving with the American Ambulance Service in France. Minnie said that he left the house around 4 p.m. and she did not hear him return that night. She didn't see him until she found his body. There were three rooms and two bathrooms between her room and the room that Jordan occupied at the front of the building. She never heard the shot. Jordan's driver, John McDevitt, told the jury that he did not see Jordan over the weekend that preceded his death. On Monday afternoon, he had taken him to Sherardi's Cafe and returned with him home that night. He said that Jordan seemed upset and nervous and his employer had mentioned not sleeping well at night. On Monday evening, Jordan went to the Turkish bath at the Planters Hotel. Jay Atkinson, manager of the baths, told the jury that he knew Jordan well. He said the two of them went swimming in the pool that afternoon and then Jordan went to the hotel's barber shop. When Atkinson returned to the pool around 6.50 p.m., Jordan was using the telephone. Atkinson testified, quote, his voice showed emotion, though I did not catch what he was saying. He appeared much disturbed when he came back from the booth, and I noticed that he smoked cigarette after cigarette during the evening. He also had two mint juleps. He left the bathroom at 11 p.m. that night. Less than two hours later, he was dead. 
Interestingly, Corner Vitt's subpoenas to the telephone company turned out to be for nothing. It was the St. Louis Star and Times newspaper that tracked down the woman who made the strange telephone call to Minnie Ron on the morning of Jordan's death. Her name was Alvenia Perstrip, a 25-year-old former stenographer for Lambert Pharmacal. According to Alvenia, she and Jordan were, quote, very good friends, nothing more. There never was what people might call an affair between us. Let me repeat, we were only good friends for several years. So yeah, they were probably having an affair. Alvinia had worked for the Lambert's company for about three years before abruptly resigning about six months before Jordan's death. Since then, she'd been living at home with her parents and Jordan had remained a, quote, close friend. It should be noted that Alvinia's resignation from the company occurred at about the same time that Jordan and his second wife, Bernice, had separated. After his death, the police discovered a letter on his desk that had been written to him by Bernice. In it, she encouraged him to take his time before considering a third marriage. If he did, he might be less apt to make a great mistake. Although there is no record of what Jordan had written to Bernice to receive such a reply, it seems possible that he was contemplating divorce and perhaps was thinking about getting married again. Could it have been to Alvinia Perstrup? No matter what she told the newspapers about she and Jordan only being close friends, well, we'll never know. We'll never know one way or the other, but it was clear that Alvinia was upset over Jordan's death. He had told her recently that he'd been sick and she had been worried about it. He called her on Friday night, Saturday night, and again on Monday when he was on his way to the Turkish bath at the Planters Hotel. He called her again that night from the hotel. This was the call that Atkinson had seen him making after he had visited the barber shop. He told Alvinia that he was feeling poorly and he might stay at the bath all night. She urged him to go and see a doctor, but of course, he never did. The next time she heard from him was at 12.15 a.m. His first words into the telephone receiver were, quote, I'm so sick. She again urged him to call a doctor, but Jordan said that he feared that he was going to pass out. Again, Alvedia told him to call his doctor. This time he replied, quote, that won't do any good. I'm sick at mind. Alvedia called to him, but he hung up the telephone and was gone. Alvinia then rang the operator and had her place a call to the Lambert home. She spoke to Minnie Ron and urged her to check on Jordan. Minnie did not tell her that Jordan was dead, only that something had happened, and she did not find out until she read it in the newspaper the following day. She did not volunteer her name or information for the inquest because she wanted to avoid publicity, and although she added again that she and Jordan were not having an affair, she stayed quiet out of, quote, consideration for the feelings of Mr. Lambert's family. After that, Alvinia Perstrup vanished into history. Many of the mysteries surrounding Jordan Lambert's death were never solved. The spent cartridge from the automatic was never found. Whether or not Alvinia was ever more than just a close friend remains unknown. The reason for the split with Bernice was never publicized. In spite of the lingering questions, the coroner's jury accepted the verdict of suicide. Although Jordan didn't leave a note, his cousin Albert did attempt to explain the reasons he believed that Jordan had pulled the trigger. He worried constantly Albert said, and this had caused his nervous breakdown. He worried about the war in Europe. Two of their factories in France and Germany had been closed by the war. He added that when a ship sailed carrying Lambert products, his cousin worried until it reached its destination. Two of Jordan's brothers, Albert Bond and Marion, were in the war service and Jordan fretted about them daily. He had even made a trip to Washington to volunteer for service in some way, but had been rejected because of his age. He also worried because the company had recently changed advertising agencies, Albert said, and because his poor health had kept him out of the office. The company's officers had insisted that Jordan take a long rest, but he refused. He was a super sensitive man, Albert explained, and a very charitable one. I placed no significance to the telephone call to his apartment. There are perhaps a thousand people in St. Louis who have cause to remember his charity. In other words, Albert hoped that the newspapers would remember all the good things that Jordan had done for the city and not spend too much time worrying about young stenographers and late night telephone calls. Jordan Lambert was cremated and laid to rest in Bell Fountain Cemetery after a brief service at the Wagner Undertaking Parlor. Only Albert and JD were present at the service. Bernice, along with she and Jordan's six-month-old daughter, arrived from Vermont on August 9th. Helen and her children did not return to St. Louis for the funeral. The story of the Lamberts and their mysterious medium, Will Hannigan, remains one of St. Louis's oddest tales of ghosts and unsolved mysteries. After his time with the Lamberts came to an end, Will Hannigan disappeared from the public eye. When his sister Lily was married a short time later, she moved to Indiana and Will went with her. 
He lived with her and her husband for the rest of Lily's life. When she passed away, she left her entire estate to Hannigan. And when he died in 1942, he donated it all to the Catholic Church. We will never know the truth of Hannigan's psychic talents. We'll also never know for sure what went on behind the doors of the Lambert home during the years when Hannigan had a quote, strange influence over the family, as Helen's mother described it. Whatever it was, it was volatile enough to destroy a marriage and, well, may have even destroyed a life. Jordan Lambert had everything he could have possibly have wanted. A luxurious home, a beautiful family, a thriving company, and more money than he could have spent in several lifetimes. And yet, a series of allegedly bizarre incidents that were first embraced and then debunked by the newspapers caused his perfect world to spin out of control. Within a few years, he was divorced, remarried, estranged from his second wife, possibly mixed up in a scandalous affair, and then dead from a suicide that no one could have predicted. Was it all because, quote, the rich are very different than you and me, to paraphrase F. Scott Fitzgerald, or were there other forces at work in the life of Jordan Lambert? Those are questions that will never be answered, not in this lifetime. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 26, which is the 13th episode of season 2, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, well, how you doing? Everything good? I'm good. Sleepy, right. but I'm good. Yeah, sleepy, but good. Yeah. We're back. I, we may have eaten too much pizza. You know, before we decided it happens to, to me this. more often than know, me the too. average person. Me too. So, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm good. I'm glad to be on this next episode, uh, delving back into this story again. I uh, I promised. I promised 
I wasn't sure how many. I, t- I told you it'd be at least two. So we got it in two. Yeah. I think that's a miracle. It really it really is. <laughs> I never know. I can never believe your outlines I know. Anymore. I know. Well, you know, we could have. I didn't. Originally, I planned this for one episode. Then it became two. And I thought, well, should we go more? And I think that I think this really covered the story, I think, in the best way that we could do it without, you know, getting into too much minutia. So, yeah. Um, it's, it's a great story. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but, um, but yeah, it was fun to do another episode of this. Cause I mean, we have a lot of stuff going on. We got a lot of, we still have a lot of St. Louis episodes to go this fall. We've got a good ones planned. Um, uh, we also have a lot of other things going on this fall, as you know. So, and by the time everybody hears this, our tickets are, have been on sale now for, um, gosh, a week, a week for Alton and Decatur, uh, Alton being our, our, I think really honestly, our biggest tour anywhere yeah of all of our tours in the country alton is the biggest one we've got going on this year um with a lot of different events and the walking tours the bus tours the dinner and spirits you know experience with the ghost hunts and the dinner and then of course our ghost of the river road dinner tours and listen those dinner tours and even the bus tours if you um and we hope to see you over in alton and um if you're coming over uh, for any of the tours, seriously, don't wait too long. I know it's August and people are thinking about the end of summer and Labor Day and back to school, but it's time to start thinking about tour season. Um, it, it, I, it seems like it gets earlier every year, but really we've been doing it about the same time the last quite a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is um, imperative if you're hoping, especially one of the dinner tours or something, get on it because that stuff is is really filling up. So. Yep, and I guarantee I'm going to have some some friends come up to me around sep- the end of September <laughs> right, and say, hey, uh, can you get us in? And I'm going to uh, say, no, 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 I, no cannot. I can't. So, And if you want to do something with uh, Cody and I, uh, October 5th, right now, we uh, we have a few spots left. We, we're actually, that thing's getting pretty full. But on October 5th, there's going to be a ghost hunt at the Mineral Springs. That's separate from uh, all of the, the tours and everything that are going on. We're going to have to kind of work our way around that. But I think we start at 9 o'clock or so, 8, 8 or 9 o'clock. Uh, but we're doing a ghost hunt at the Mineral Springs. Lisa has to go to a wedding. It's going to be out of town. So um, she trusted me to be watched by cody i think i think it was babysit by cody or yeah uh vice versa i'm not sure how that goes i don't know but how it's yeah gonna... october 5th if you want to if you want to join us at the mineral springs it will be a ghost hunt i'm sure there will be you know at least to start off with some sort of shenanigans involved oh there'll but, be snarky commentary yeah, but we'll definitely uh we're going to be hosting a, a ghost hunt of the entire building it's not just what you see on the tours it's you know it's um Pearl's room, it's the swimming pool, it's the, you know, the basement, you know, bottling plant slash slaughterhouse, the whole bit. So you can see the entire Mineral Springs, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So anyway, we've got we've got plenty of stuff coming up for the fall. And uh, oh, and I also wanted to mention, um, we, we mentioned it first in our last episode back from vacation, but thanks to everybody who has been uh, supporting the show with your purchase of the podcast t-shirts. Uh, that we put together. I, I, I throw, give me a shout out to your friend who put that logo together. Did somebody do that for you? It was uh, on Fiverr, but I don't actually know who it was. Oh, it was okay. Just, uh, some oh, freelancer. Oh, so somebody, thanks, random yeah, freelancer. Thanks, random person. We appreciate it um, because it's, it is very cool. Yeah. And um, if whoever you are, if you'd like us, if you're listening and you'd like us to, uh, you know, give you a shout out, let us know who you are so that we know and we can say thanks. Um, Cause it, we've got our, it's got our, it's a logo we put on our stickers that we've sent out to our, our Patreon people, but now it's on a T-shirt, too. So thanks a lot. Awesome. And uh, thanks to all of you who've been picking those up and uh, supporting the show. So, well, before we get started with the rest of the show, uh, let's take a quick break. If you're enjoying the show, remember that American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference. So if you're into haunted history, you're going to love everything else that we do as well. And you can see all of that at our website, AmericanHauntings.net. If you've been enjoying the St. Louis episodes of the podcast, you might also enjoy the new edition of my book, Haunted St. Louis, which lets you take a deeper dive into these stories and plus a lot more that we won't be able to cover on the show. And coming on September 4th is the release of my brand new book, Suffer the Children, a collection of American horrors, homicides, and hauntings that all delve into what I think of as Cody's favorite subject, which is, of course, ghost children. Um, But this book, and while I laugh right now, this book does come with the word of caution. 
I've been writing about some pretty disturbing stuff for most of my career, some brutal, agonizing, terrifying stuff. But this book is without a doubt the worst so far. Um, it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for those easily disturbed. So if you're bothered by reading really disturbing stories, this is not the book for you. Seriously, don't read it and don't say that I didn't warn you. And remember that as an American Hauntings podcast listener, you always get 10% off your orders from our online store by using the promo code podcast when you're checking out. See the show notes for the link to the store. Hey, you guys, before we get started with this episode, we've got some exciting news to share with you. If you love the American Hauntings podcast, then this is your chance to be a part of it. During every episode, we mention that the podcast is just one part of American Hauntings, all of our books and our tours and our ghost hunts and events. And recently, we launched a brand new community on Patreon that gives you the chance to become an American Hauntings VIP. If you decide to do this, we've got tons of rewards. I get to send you all kinds of stuff in the mail, decals, buttons, shirts, all that good stuff. But we're going beyond that. So some of the reward levels include things like discounts from our online store, early access to events, private paranormal meetups at haunted places around the country, private ghost hunts, lectures, tours, even dinners, just for our subscribers. We're also gonna send you exclusive privately printed books by Troy Taylor, not available to the public. And since you're a VIP, you're going to have free access to some of our events, including the Haunted America Conference. We're also including bonus episodes of this podcast for subscribers only. So if you're one of those listeners who wishes the podcast was every week, this is your chance for new shows each week. Now, one of our goals is to try to upgrade the equipment that we use to produce the podcast. So as a listener, this is your chance to help us and to be a part of American Hauntings history. To get involved, just go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings or see the show info for the link. We hope to see you at one of our private subscriber events in the near future. To get involved, just go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings or just see the show info for the link. Now, on with the show. Yep. Okay. So where we when we la- last left off, uh, Will, when we last left Will Hannigan, yes. he, yeah, he was gone. He was gone. <laughs> he was missing. So he gets interviewed um, by a newspaper, and then it's a very strange interview, and then he just disappears. Right. Then he breaks off all contact with the outside world as do the rest of the Lamberts. Suddenly, um, and I think there were probably two reasons for this. One, I'm going to say that probably not Will Hannigan, but at least that Lamberts were probably fairly embarrassed by the interview. But the weird thing was, is that, you know, the press, the local press in St. Louis had been building up, you know, Will Hannigan and the things going on at the Lamberts now for, for months. They'd been writing about it on a regular basis in the paper. And now suddenly you had an interview with this guy and my guess, my guess would be is it, kind of what I said in the story. When the public got a hold of this strange little dude, he was just as weird as they had hoped he'd be. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, they, I think they wanted somebody really strange, and he was. And so then all of the sudden, everybody started bombarding the Lamberts with, you know, requests for him to come to seances, to find missing people, find lost objects you know, tell fortunes, you name it. I mean, they wanted everything from him. And I think it just became too much. Plus, I also think that it was kind of an awakening for Jordan more than anyone Mm -hmm. with it with, you know, suddenly this this was really had blown up. I mean, it was already in the papers, but now it was just sort of insane. Um, You know, they started calling this interview the Hannigan incident. I mean, that's oh, what, okay. yeah, that's what they started calling it around. And he was now in the public eye and, you know, Jordan was not thrilled by this and it would just get worse because, you know, reporters were coming to the house and they were asking to talk to him and, and then May would say, oh yeah, he's here, but you know, I'll have to see if we can get permission. And then she leaves, comes back and goes, oh no, no, he's not here. He's mm-hmm. not here at all. You know, uh, Mr. Hannigan has left the building, you know, kind right. of thing. And, um, you know, is is retired to the country, you know, that kind of stuff. And so 
in absence in this vacuum that's been created by first his, you know, been putting him on the public stage and then nothing just disappears and nothing. Um, the newspapers had to have something to write about. And I think that this initial reporter who interviewed him, and we don't know what his name was. It wasn't listed on any of the I was going to ask about that. But he may have been the one who instigated this backlash because soon, with without him around to ask questions to and get answers from, not that he was really great about giving answers right. anyway, but um, without him around, they just started making their own stories. And suddenly all of these things that, you know, had been lauded as these miraculous events didn't really seem so miraculous after all. Um, you know, they started interviewing, you know, other investigators and especially magicians mm -hmm. who were calling this stuff nothing but stunts and exploits and, you know, uh, easily duplicated by, I think one of the quotes was performed by hocus pocus people and jugglers or something like that. I mean, it was just, you know, nobody was really taking this seriously. I mean, they were coming out and saying, you know, you know, look, here's this guy, pretty much what we were saying in the last episode. Here's this guy who is essentially a magician who's performing uh, on his own stage. Yeah. I mean, it was his, it's a stage of his creation in this house where most of the things he'd done that everybody had been hearing about was being performed by Helen and her friends, you know, or for her, for Helen and her friends. And, you know, suddenly this didn't seem so legit after all, you know, uh, because this was, the kind of stuff that anybody could have done. And we, we talked about the roses mm -hmm. in the last episode where they just appeared on the table. But one of my favorite newspaper quotes is that a third rate magician could have produced them uh, along with a flock of doves, a brace of rabbits and several dozen yards of bunting all at the same time. You yeah. know, so nobody was taking this too seriously at this point. And uh, they really, you know, they really went after him hard. Yeah. Had they been making any money off of no, this? No, it was just not, entertainment. They, they didn't need the money. It just it was it was a case of where this was the kind of stuff that was astounding people. And in a few years, it'd be it would be Pearl Curran's turn. Yeah, you know, just a few years later. So it was still popular. I mean, it wasn't like this destroyed the popularity of spiritualism in St. Louis. It didn't uh, because you know it'd be a few more years. It would be it would be her with her Ouija board. Mm -hmm. uh, but right now we had this guy who had become famous in the city, even though no one had ever seen him or met him. They just heard about him secondhand. And then when he disappears, then you know story's got to keep running. Right. So what are we going to run a story on? Well, let's run a story on the fact that. This none of this stuff he's supposedly done is really all that impressive. He, she, he could have just held one last seance and be like, "Oh, I lost it." Yeah, anything you, you know? know, instead of just disappearing. But I think that my guess would be that the interview, you know, in addition to embarrassing Helen and probably embarrassing Jordan, as we'd find out soon, mm -hmm. um, I think it probably. I don't know if it embarrassed him or not, but I mean, surely he felt like a fool yeah. when it was over. I, I don't know. Maybe he didn't. I mean, maybe that was part of the problem right. that he didn't. Um, I don't know. Um, but, you know, the, the thing was, is they, they really went after him. You know, they, they outlined all of the things that he'd done that had impressed the Lamberts, you know, and came up with logical explanations for all of it and then still wouldn't let it go. Then went looking for his family members. And See, nobody had ever delved into any of that stuff. You know? Right. And they found, was it Will's brother was a police officer? Was yeah, they found his brother and his brother-in-law. His mother had died and um, there was more. I found some stuff about his father who was still alive, uh, who didn't really have any kind of comments to make. And uh, they talked to his brother-in-law who ran a butcher shop. And he said that, you know, well, you know, he never took any of it seriously when he heard about it. See, He'd never purported to have any kind of psychic powers at any other point in his life. It just suddenly materialized early in 1908. So his brother's like, yeah, I first heard about it. I thought it was a joke. You know, I thought it was, I thought he was kidding. And then he went and spoke to his brother, who was a city detective, John Hannigan. And he said he hadn't seen him in a year, didn't even know where he'd lived. I mean, it's not exactly a tight-knit family and didn't even know where he'd been living uh, until he saw these articles about him in the paper. So it's possible these two didn't really get along that well anyway. We know that he was close with his sister Lily mm -hmm. uh, because she had been at the burglar seance. And then, of course, as I mentioned in the monologue, he went and lived with her after, you know, he left the city, after he was fired by the Lamberts. You know, he, he left and left town with her when she got married. But, I mean, his brother, the detective, said, you know, 
let's keep me out of this. Yeah, I, got I don't other want stuff any to part do. of this. I'm I'm I've got other things to do. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that the the feeling after all of this with these expose type articles that followed the interview um, were pretty embarrassing. Well, we know they were to Jordan because that was he finally, you know, hadn't been talking to the newspapers about any of it. And now suddenly he's agreeing to talk to a reporter and said, you know, God, this is, I mean, he essentially said, this is embarrassing. You know, I, I walk down the street and, you know, people I've known for years now avoid me, you know, or I've got, you know, people I do business with or, or probably play billiards with, too, right. um, drink with, you know, whatever. But people that he knew that he's known forever, they're like, are you nuts? Are you nuts? I can't believe you're letting people put this in the newspaper. You sound like a bunch of nutcases, yeah. you know. And so I think that, you know, he'd had enough, you know, with all of the letters and the, the things that followed in the newspaper articles and all that stuff. I think that was just sort of the end of it. Yeah. Um, you know, they, it wasn't long after that, that they, they fired him, that they let him go, didn't want him in the house any longer. And, um, but that didn't end Helen's interest in spiritualism. And my guess would be, it may not have ended her, you know, fascination with Will Hannigan, because like I said, in 1928, 20 years after this happened, She's publishing a monograph with the ASPR about psychic abilities in Will Hannigan. So I'm not sure she ever stopped believing in it, but we know Jordan did. And I mean, he, he made it really clear, I'm done. I'm not doing yeah. this anymore. And then by the summer of 1911, so a little over two years later, they're split up. They've yeah. separated. Do you think um, Helen's interest with Will Hannigan was purely the... Um the seance stuff and the, and the the psychic stuff, or do you think they had any romantic no, I don't interest? Th- oh, no, I don't think so. Um, that's not the impression I get from it. I mean, uh, when you um, you look at some of the photos and stuff, this is not somebody that's going to, I don't think, would appeal to her. I think he was very, um, you know, he, he never married. He never had, was involved in any kind of relationships mm-hmm. or anything. I just think he was just an unusual little man. Yeah. I mean, he's a little guy, and, and I just think he was just an odd duck you know and i just think that her um her fascination with spiritualism and led her to sort of embrace this guy and i think that in many ways i think she turned him into what she wanted him to be Mm. i mean her mother would say that you know will hadigan had a you know strange influence over the family i'm not sure if that's what i'd call it i think that it may have been more of Helen's obsession with spiritualism and he was the, you know, he, here was the target. This was the not targets, the wrong word, but here is the embodiment of right. her fascination. The is this or guy, she's made him into something that he probably wasn't right. You know, she, her, her, her need to, you know, connect with the spirit world. She, she used him to do it. And I think she turned him into something and he really wasn't honestly. Um, and I think that that's, you know, when, when her mother said, you know, oh, that's, you know, the strange, you know, the strange hold that he had on the family. I, I don't think that's what it was. I mean, I think it was Helen's obsession with it. And I think that that drove Jordan away. Cause I mean, here's a guy with a pretty short attention span anyway, mm-hmm. um, in under the best of circumstances. I think that he, he, he had plenty of his own issues and I just don't think he was going to tolerate that, you know, any longer he'd had enough. And she continued to want to do it, and he didn't want any part of it. And I think that that's probably what led to the separation. I mean, but you you gotta you gotta give him some credit though, because you know when they first started talking about you know separating, and you know the newspapers were asking questions about you know is it because of Will Hannigan, and you know and he he wouldn't ever he never badmouth Hannigan. I mean, other than to say you know we're done with all this stuff, he never he never called him a fraud. He never took any of it out on Helen, at least not publicly. I'm sh- I'm sure in private it's probably a different story. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's what led to their separation. But you know, in the newspapers, he said, "Listen, this was all my fault. You know, we, um, you know, we've decided that we're going to split up." He said, "You know, we we both chose. We hired him. It wasn't Helen, you know, who hired him because he was a spiritualist. We hired him because he was a young nurse who could take care of our son. All of this sort of came out of it. But if I had to, if I had to." guess i would say that it mostly came from helen mm-hmm. I, I really believe that it probably did but you know they split up they went their separate ways and by 1915 jordan got married again um to um 
you know, a, a younger woman and they got married in New York and their marriage didn't last long either. Within a couple of years, they were already talking about separation. And that's when, you know, Alvenia came into the picture. And right. I mean, that's, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming some things, you know, that aren't necessarily in print, but how many, how many times do you tell a newspaper reporter, oh, but it wasn't an affair. No, no, no. We weren't having an affair. Right. I know it looks bad. We were just friends. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I was, I was reading your outline and I was like, oh, so they're having an affair. And then yeah. literally the next outline uh-huh. that you said that. Right. I said it. Yeah. Because, you know, this was a, this was a case of where, you know, they had, she was a secretary. I mean, this was like, this is like a classic story, cliche Don Draper kind of story here. I mean, it's a secretary working for, you know, his firm and, you know, they become close friends and they're calling each other in the middle of the night. And, you know, there was the letter that they found among his things from Bernice, the second wife Mm -hmm. that said, listen, you know, I get it. I get it. But, you know, if you're thinking about getting married again, give it a lot of thought before you do because otherwise you're going to be making a third mistake right you know and i think that that's you know what she feared was happening so my guess is they were probably were involved yeah um but i mean i don't think she had anything to do with his death and she became this a much more the newspapers made her into a much more mysterious character than she was you know i mean he was calling her because he didn't feel well and things were there were some there were some weird things going on with this suicide. Yeah, no yeah. Let's, let's talk about yeah, it. Let's, yeah. Let's do so, it. so it's interesting. She, um, we're assuming that she was the la- Alvinia was the last person to speak with him. Right. She said that she talked to him just a short time before she called and talked to Minnie, the maid. Right. And yeah. he, and he had responded. Uh, she told him, you know, he did, she said he said I'm so sick. She said call a doctor. He said that won't do any good. I'm sick at mind, right. which is interesting that he yeah. realized something was wrong right and then this it's it's another parallel to draw to the limps with the suicide but this is a little twist it, it seems like yeah. where it's even more mysterious well it is i mean there yeah at least with the limps except for elsa of course mm-hmm. at least with the limps when they committed suicide um there there was no mystery behind it i mean they well i mean as to why right you know why did billy kill himself well i mean it could have been just been a deep depression which could be the same problem that jordan had because i mean if you look back look back in his life and compare those two men i mean you talk about a parallel path yeah you know um wives you know high profile marriage that splits up they marry again you know the two vice presidents of companies who didn't really want to be part of the company, you know, um, had spent their kind of been ne'er-do-well sons who'd gone out and just spent their money, you know, one out drinking and fighting, the other one playing billiards and tournaments and and drinking. And so you've got a lot of parallels there. Um, But you also have, you know, a situation where, um, you know, Billy had these depressive episodes. Um, So did Jordan. I mean, you know, he gets into these, you know, this depression, his his brother and his cousins were talking about all these things he was so worried about. And he was a nervous wreck all the time because of all these things to do with business. And I think probably a lot of that was him focusing on things he thought he could, you know, he's got these marital issues and these relationship problems. And then here are these business problems that seem cut and dried that he can handle and focuses on those, but can't handle those either because you can't control World War One, Right. You know, and so... I think he probably just had a, you know, kind of a, I don't know, some sort of, some sort of depression yeah. uh, that finally drove him to it. But even then, I mean, yeah, and then you've got the newspapers built up this mysterious woman. And it really, once she found out somebody was looking for her, uh, the newspaper reporter, she came to the newspaper and said, oh, yeah, it was me, you know, but we weren't having an affair, but it was me. Right. You know, it was, that's, I mean, that's how it was presented because nobody knew who she was and they were subpoenaing you know, the, the telephone company and all this stuff, trying to find out who it was called. She just didn't know anybody was looking for. She didn't even know he was dead until it finally hit the papers, Mm. you know? So, um, it wasn't that mysterious as far as she was, but you know, the scene is, is odd. Right. Let's talk about that. You know, you can, you could say, I mean, there's an explanation for all of it, but on the other hand, it is weird. I mean, there's some weird things here. Um, yeah, he shot himself with an automatic, shot himself in the head, mm-hmm. but oddly, he had no powder burns on his face. Right. Now, 
that implies that the shot had to have come from. Now, keep in mind, there was no forensics. There's CSI, CSI didn't there's show no, up. No fingerprint taking. No, there's nothing, none of that going on. And, in, in, you know, it's 1917. So at least we're a little further along, but there's still no forensics or anything. But that would have to imply that the shot came from four to five feet away with no powder burns. Right. But, I mean, microscopically, there may have been powder burns or in his hair or on his clothing that they just didn't see any black on his face. Right. So that's how they released it in the report. There were no powder burns. Well, but you could have I mean, awkwardly held the gun a couple of – you could have yeah. held it oddly a couple of feet away. Maybe there were, but he blew them away. <laughs> right. I mean, it's – yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, there was, you know – only one cartridge left in the magazine and one in the chamber because it, it, it fed another shell, but it ejects the shell mm-hmm. as it fires, but no one ever found it. Now, again, you're not talking, I mean, nobody looked, I doubt anybody looked very hard. Right. I mean, if the shell had been lying out on the floor, they would have seen it, but I mean, it, they probably ruled it almost automatically a suicide. Yeah. And so nobody really What's looked very hard. I mean, it could have. It could have been in the clothing. It could have fallen onto the bed. It could have fallen down the register in the in the room. I mean, it could have been anything. It yeah. could have gone anywhere. And nobody looked very hard. Um, but it's still odd that it never turned up, at mm-hmm. least in any of the reports. For all we know, they found it three months later. Right? right. But it was never recorded. But at least they didn't find it at the scene, which all of those things are strange. They they are very odd. The whole The whole thing was odd. I mean... Yes, he was nervous. Yes, he was depressed. But really, why in the world would he kill himself? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I mm-hmm. mean, but again, we say the same kind of thing about, you know, Billy or whoever. But I do find it funny, though, that the maid called a brother and then a brother called a doctor. Nobody calls the police. It's just oh, like the no. limps. Yeah. You know, it's like all the lawyers. All these, they call the lawyers, call the doctors, call the family. Oh, and then, oh, oh yeah. And it's an they, afterthought. Or like with Elsa, where they didn't call the police at all. He found out by accident right. because El- poor Edwin hit somebody on the street. So, uh. yeah, it's some, some really odd stuff. And, you know, and it became more, it became more mysterious because of the way the information sort of unspooled, mm-hmm. you know, but it's still, it's still an interesting story and it's a, still a very odd story. And, you know, you know, why you, again, you, you fall back to the why. Right. I mean, it's super sad because you mentioned that Jordan Lambert had everything he could possibly wanted. And yeah, you mentioned this a couple of times with the F Scott Fitzgerald quote about the rich are very different than you and me. Mm-hmm. I think it's true, but I think in a lot of ways they're not, they still have problems and they still get sad right. and money doesn't fix right. everything doesn't fix those things which is super depressing to I think know. that it doesn't but i know so i mean i think it all i think the situation where everybody just sort of came to a kind of a sad end yeah really i mean you know uh nobody whether, wins in this no story, no yeah. they don't they don't you know um you know i think you know helen moved on you know, I don't know whatever happened to Bernice. I don't know. I'll try to find out one of these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's hard to say what happened to the kids. You know, what happened to some of them? You know, yeah. there's more to this story. I just I wanted to present the the, the integral part of the story. I mean, mm-hmm. there's more to it, but I don't think any of it gets any happier. You know, I mean, Will Hannigan, you know, was let go from a position he probably liked. And and. Again, I, I, I don't I don't think of him as a shyster or a con artist. I really think he was pressured into what he became, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm not even saying I'm not even convinced that Helen did it on purpose. I don't think she right. made him pretend to be a medium so she could get attention. I think that her desperate need for this and he this was a way for him to fulfill that need that she needed, you know, mm-hmm. and so he did it because Here's an impressionable, probably a needy young guy who never really had, you know, didn't have much family. Obviously, they weren't close. Right. You know, his mother had died. You know, this was probably the closest thing to a family he had. So he did everything he needed to to try to fit in, try to impress him. You know, um, but then he ends up, you know, never married, moving, living with his sister and her husband for, in Indiana for the rest of their life. Did he ever pop up again? No, or? she died. Um, when she died, she left him everything in her will. And then when he died in 1942, he left all of her money to uh, the Catholic Church. And that was pretty much the end. I mean, we'll never really know, you know, how psychic or if he was psychic at all. Well, I don't think we'll ever really know for sure. You know, we have these stories. We have these reports. 
something was going on. I mean, something obviously was going on, but was it something created out of, um, you know, the desperate need for something to happen that the people have just created this in a, you know, I, I don't want to use the word hysterical, but you know what I mean? And yeah. Kind of, you know, created it out of our desperate need for something to happen. I mean, I've seen that kind of thing happen over the years in, in different circumstances and different situations. And that might explain what happened here. Um, but something did. Yeah. I mean, there were enough people who came and who saw things going on and you know you can write them all off to go oh you know Ouija boards and automatic writing those are you know kind of things that, that people can imagine anything uh, but there were other things too I mean there had to have been a reason that there were scientists coming and believing that he could stretch his arm 20 inches yeah. I mean you know or that he really was in touch with the spirit world we just weren't ever shown much of the evidence because I just don't think there was much um, that's why I think this whole thing was more psychosomatic than anything, you know. Um, but it's a great story. Yeah. And it's, again, it's it's a family that you can draw such parallels to the Limp family, you know, in their time period and their, the wealth and their involvement. And, and, of course, Jordan's suicide. But people don't really know the story. I mean, the Lamberts are not a story that like, we all know the name. Yeah. But we don't know where it comes from, you know. So, um, anyway, that's uh, that's it. That's and- the the city's wealthiest spiritualists. That's Gee. what I like to call them. So. Well, I mean, it's it's very different from our other episodes because it ends so sad. Usually yeah. there's such a happy note. I know. At oh, the yeah, end. right, right. Uh-huh. But no, uh, <laughs> it's a great story. Um, they brought us Listerine, you know. I yeah, gotta, exactly. Gotta thank them Left for that. Brought us an airport. Which I yeah. don't know if we want to brag about the airport or not, but uh, we can. So. Uh, we, yeah, we had <laughs> tough times. We all have our there. experiences there. Yeah, yeah, we did a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I, I got the third base, I'm pretty sure. But uh, I do have a follow-up question, though. What is a Turkish bath? Oh, they were uh, like saunas. Um, oh. You ever see in the movies, um, sometimes you'll see them. Um, you see them like with – they're like a – they were spa for men. And you'll often see in the movies, usually with like a lot of big like Russian guys in towels, okay. sitting in a steam room, but with a swimming pool. Like John Wick, like yeah, in the basement like, of yeah, that club yeah, or like whatever? that, like that. That was a Turkish <laughs> bath. And they were very popular in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And the Planter House in St. Louis, I talk more about that in the book. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's one of those details that isn't really necessary for yeah. a podcast. But um, I talk about the hotels that had their own Turkish baths. They were indoor swimming pools, except they weren't very big. The pools weren't big, and they were mostly usually attached to like a steam room, sauna type situation. Got it. Know? Well, yeah, so, I was just glancing through, and I was like, I don't yeah, know just, what just this imagine, is. Just imagine like in, uh, yeah, like John Wick or um, uh, History. No, it wasn't History of Violence. It was the other one with uh, Vigo Vigo. And I can't remember the name of it. Uh, Easter Promises. Oh, okay. Yeah. Although, unless you really want to see Vigo Mortensen killing people naked, don't watch this. But <laughs> I mean, um, but but it, you get that whole vibe of the the towel. It's usually always like these Russian guys or you know mobsters or right. something because they meet in there because nobody's carrying a gun because they're only wearing a towel or oh, you know a recording smart. device or something. So, but yeah, so you can picture that you know big hairy sweaty men and you know, in towels. That's and, your Turkish bath. And that's so. how we'll end it. We'll leave you with that image. <laughs> well, yeah. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for um, staying with us for a couple of episodes uh, of a story. I hope, hopefully you didn't know. Um, that's, that was my, that was my big thing with this particular one. This is, this was a story that was brand new to the new edition of the haunted St. Louis book. It's not anything I'd covered before. And um I um, hope to cover it more in the future and more in depth. And, you know, who knows? The story may change the more things I find out. But thank you for sticking with us. Um, Pass it on. Share it with your friends. uh, Leave us reviews wherever you listen to your podcasts. But no matter where that is, uh, head over to iTunes. Uh, We need to post the actual link to the podcast on iTunes so it would make it a little easier for people to find it. Yes. We'll try to dig that up and get that into the show notes so that it's easier for you to find it. And just leave us a review because the, the more you can do that for us, the easier it is to find the show. And uh, But thanks again, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll be back soon with yeah. another episode. And please head over to the website, AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, and pick up a t-shirt because yeah, they're really absolutely. cool. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. 
American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have some links to some of Troy's books, as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or CodyBeck.com. You can find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author Page, or AmericanHauntings.net. This episode was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck.